G'day everyone, my name is Tom Craig and you're listening to my podcast, The Help Side, where we speak to some of the most recognisable names in world hockey and get an insight into who they are, what they're about and what makes them tick. Now if you like what you hear, feel free to follow our socials at The Help Side on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'd absolutely love that. G'day everyone, you're listening to part B of our two-part Help Side chat with Jamie Dwyer Make sure you don't just start here. Scroll back and listen to part A if you missed it, and we'll see you back here shortly. For the rest of you, welcome back. Jamie is just about to walk us through a blow-by-blow of his gold medal winning gold in the Athens Olympics and how he deals with the pressure that comes with such a momentous occasion. It's a pretty good place to start, so let's go. To the final, 2004, um... It's probably a gold medal hiding in this house somewhere. Uh, but... Yeah, I won't tell you where it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you talk to us about the game and uh, the goal? Because perhaps one of the, the most famous moments in Australian men's hockey history is um, provided by yourself <laughs> with, that, with that goal, which I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen. But can you talk about the game firstly and then... Yeah, well, I remember on the way to the game, I remember a few guys throwing up in the bus. <laughs> I jumped on the bus and I had my set playlist and I went through for that tournament. And I was like, oh, geez, I'm really nervous and uh, I'm excited but it's nervous. Because when you go to that game, you know you're going to get a medal and you mm. just want the right one. Mm. So it was sort of a weird feeling, but uh, I remember jumping on and I was like, geez, I'm so nervous. And then a few guys in the back, like dry reaching, I'm like, well, they're really nervous. I'm not like that. And then the warm-up, you get all those energy out, and I, I did the warm-up, and I was first coming in after the warm-up to the change rooms, and I look up, and there's this Dutch kid, he would have been 10, 11, same age as like my son now, and he yells out in perfect English, wearing his orange shirt, orange shorts, and hat, hey, Australia, you're going to lose! <laughs> and I just started laughing, I was like, oh, it's, it's just sort of loosening me, me up a little bit. And then, uh, yeah, the game, we dominated and I've watched it a couple of times since then and seriously we could have won 6 or 7-1 mm. um, we just couldn't put our chances away I, mm. I think I had about 10 chances Troy Elder had a couple of really good opportunities Mick had a couple of good opportunities we all we played brilliantly mm. and if you watch the game we are a much better team and even if you ask the Dutch guys they'd admit that so um, but unfortunately we didn't take our chances it went to it was one all and it went to shootouts Oh, sorry, I didn't go to shit. It went to extra time. And then if it, if it was still a draw after extra time, it goes to um, strokes. Mm. And I knew I was the fifth stroke taker for if it went that far. And I really didn't want to go <laughs> to, to strokes because I saw what happened to Brent Livermore four years earlier where it got safe. So we'll try our best to, just to score. Anyway, we got a corner right on the first period of extra time. And... Someone runs over the coach, relays the message, and the message was for me to take it. It was a variation corner, but because of how they ran, I knew that I had a very good chance of of the corner coming to me. Mm. And I when was, you say variation corner, quickly, can you explain that? So the ball comes out, and depending on how the um, opponents run, our flicker says yes or no. Yep. And if he says no, it comes to me. If he says yes, it goes to the other side, to the yep. right. I was on the left or it goes to the right. And they run a 1-3 every single time. So I knew, like, 90% chance here, it's mm. coming to me. And I had a couple of opportunities before in normal time, and I flipped it, and the keeper saved it. So the kick, the call came out, and I said, let's just flick it. Like, I wasn't confident. I was like, let's just get a shot on target and get the rebound. And, of course, the drag flicker at that time was Troy Ellie. He's like, yeah, let's just do that. <laughs> and uh, I think Brent... Livermore said, no, let's stick, let's stick to the core, which <coughs> on this day, I think you could have been thinking about, let's just flick it, mm. um, but that was a pretty gutsy call, mm. okay, let's stick to the coach when he's got two guys yelling, saying, you know, maybe yeah, we yeah, yeah. So it's credit to him for sticking and trusting the coach. So it comes out, bunts over to me. And normally I would flick this ball. I've been practicing flicking it for years uh, in this variation. But the guy was on me a little bit too quickly, so I decided to hit it. Um, It missed his foot by about 
hang up, a centimetre or two centimetres, went in between the keeper's pads and up into the goal. And I, it felt like time stopped. Well, I'm sure time stopped because it's like the ball went and hit the net. I look over to the umpire, he blows a goal. And then I'm just like, what the hell just happened here? And I run off like a crazy guy. And yeah, it didn't, it was just, the feeling was just relief. Like just, like we earned it. It it just felt like the best feeling ever. It still doesn't sink in to this Mm. day that I won a gold medal at the Mm. Olympics. I still pinch myself. uh, You know, it's just a, a feeling that, I had this dream when I was a little kid that I'd play hockey or cricket or some sort of sport for Australia um, and go to the Olympics and win a gold medal. And the journey it took me to get there was was rocky and it was hard and sometimes awesome, but it was a journey that I committed to. Mm. And just for that goal to go in was something that, uh, yeah, a dream come true. And the way it all happened, you know, like Terry Walsh, who never, he was the coach of Holland. He didn't give me a chance playing for Australia back in 99, 2000 um, to score a winning goal like against him, who I'm friends with now. Uh, Barry, who was a great mentor, like the mates who we still keep in touch to this day. Like everything, like just was, felt like it was just meant to be. Mm. And yeah, it was obviously for me and probably for the other 15 guys in that team, it was a dream come true. It's a good segue to talk about pressure, I think, because a um, bit of pressure on that moment, you'd have to say. Did you feel it at the time? Yes and no. Um, yeah, I felt pressure probably before the game. Mm. Um, but once you're into the rhythm of it, you mm. sort of just you, you turn into robot mode and just go through you know, what you practice every mm. day. Um, the ball coming over to me, I remember, just smash it. Mm. Like, whatever's meant to be will be and hopefully it'll get in there which it did but I didn't really feel real pressure because we practiced that corner mm. thousands of times mm. thousands and it was our go-to for a big game and I knew it was going to happen whether it was in the semi-final or final mm. so and I've been practicing this my whole life to be honest I remember playing in Rockhampton on the grass with Mark Knowles um pretending we were in the Olympics against someone and we'd shoot and see what happens. Mm. Most times I missed. <laughs> but pressure, yeah, not really. Not at that moment. I knew I could execute and see what happened. Gotcha. And from there, um, I remember asking, uh, like, I played hockey. My friends at primary school knew that. And I remember um, talking about the Cookaburras. And I remember most of my mates only knew one name in the Cookaburras. And I think it's fair to say that that moment that goal that world player of the year kind of elevated you to um the public eye beyond hockey circles um and you you had you had a manager and you were kind of one of the few hockey players who actually um yeah became a recognizable sporting figure in australia can you talk talk about that yeah, I didn't see myself like that. And I had a coach, Baron Denser, who would knock me down pretty much straight away if, mm. I, um, if I was thinking like that because it was all about the team. I wish Baz said, yeah, you are good. You know, you're great. Go go for it. And just to see how it would go in that, like uh, with his blessing to mm. like, be a little bit more out there and push the game a little bit more and promote mm. it. Um, not on the same level, but like Michael Jordan has did for basketball. Mm. Everyone knew Michael Jordan. And then he won the gold medal in 92 and then like NBA exploded. Mm. Uh, I wanted to really promote the game here in Australia uh, and push it as much as I could. I knew I had an opportunity to do that. I got reined in quite a bit and I know why I got reined in is because we wanted the best for the team and I didn't mm. want other players in that team looking at myself and thinking, oh, Jamie, you know, he's a bit arrogant or mm. he's... He's doing this, so, um, and I took off over to play in Holland pretty much straight away as well. So I was sort of out of the out of the news, or I didn't know what was going on when I was living and playing over there. So yeah, I guess in one way, I wish I I wish I could have promoted the sport a little bit more through that 
me being a, a well-known name and um, through me um, scoring that goal and becoming the world's best player and sort of growing the sport here in Australia. And I think I missed that opportunity. Um, on the other hand, on the field, I wanted just to keep getting better. I had a taste of, of success and I loved it. I had a taste of losing as well in the 2002 World Cup final. I hated it. So I just wanted to go out there and just keep winning because I knew we had a good bunch of guys that really had a good opportunity to, to create a dynasty. And so on the field, I just kept pushing myself, kept pushing my teammates. So the dynamics have changed a little bit, but we had a great group, which I just wanted to keep pushing and me personally push them to be better. But uh, yeah, off the field, with me being overseas for the majority of the year in Holland and and me not being able to push the sport here as much as what I would have liked um, is something that yeah, I wanted to happen, I wish it did happen. Mm. Yeah, okay. 2006, the interesting thing is that the, uh, I mean, the dynasty happened as far as like world ranking was concerned and um, I guess minor tournaments, but then a few setbacks, 2006 World Cup, lost to a good German team in the final you did your hamstring before that game um and then 2008 again cruel twist of fate but missed out on the on the final with um that game against the spanish in the in the semi-final was that team different to the 2014 could you have predicted that or was that not just not sport really uh, i think that's just sport uh, it wasn't just me you got injured in 2006 we had a few other injuries really really Good player, uh, people that got injured. Uh, Wellesley uh, was injured. I think Shuby missed that tournament as well. So we had a couple of good players that were missing. I wish, I wish I didn't tear my hamstring. I wish I played that final. Mm. I think I could have made a difference, and it hurt mm. watching that. Uh, watching uh, Christopher Zeller dominate um, pretty much for the Germans. But there's little instances, you know, the, the stick, uh, the goal that Bjorn Emling scored off the back of his stick these days would be. Different, but that's sport, and that's been mm. that's been happening in hockey for you know 50, 60 years. Just wasn't meant to be. Um, in that in that two thousand and six World Cup, saying that you know we played we played our best hockey mm. uh, with what we had, and we got beaten by a, a better team. So in the end, it was it hurt, but it it didn't hurt as much as if we played poorly or if we just didn't have the you know we didn't have the the right mix I I just think that we played well for what we had and we could have won it could have went either way it's just that's just what happened in that tournament Mm. and it was a great tournament 2008 we had a good team as well Um, I think we made a couple of selection uh, issues there I think I would have had definitely a different team to what went but I mean, Brett Livermore missed out, who I think uh, probably should have made it. I'm not too sure who he should have made it for. The problem is that Rob Hammond was playing unbelievable at centre-half, and that was Brent's main position. So to put Brent somewhere else was hard, but um, his experience, I think, would have, would have helped us at that Olympic Games. But yeah, we got, I think us and, and Spain were the best two teams in the world. And Spain beat us in the semi-final, and then yeah, the Germans do what the Germans do and beat them in the final. But... I think the culture and the, the confidence and the whole team bond was very similar through that whole period. Um, we just didn't have the quality in the like the finishing touches like we did in Athens. Like Michael Brennan was an unbelievable player mm. in 2004 and then retired in 2005. Like his skill set and his confidence and his like just the way he played hockey um, helped us win that Olympics. And he wasn't there. Uh, Grant Schubert wasn't there in 2006 and then got injured in 2008 as well. Like his, you know, his pressing, and you know, what he brings to the, to the team we missed. So we had a lot of things not go our way. Um, and in the end, uh, maybe we didn't deserve it. We weren't, we weren't a 10%, 5% better than the rest of the world. We're just there, thereabouts. Um, but yeah, that was just us as a team, not, not as good as probably what we could have been. Mm. What is your? Do you have a theory on on selecting a a great team? What do you? What's your theory behind that? Uh, 
it's one of the most challenging things I think for any coach, especially later on because they get to know people's personalities and girlfriends, wives, uh, partners, whatever, and you know what they do for work. So once you get to know someone more personally, it's hard to tell them, you know, you're killing their dream or not selecting them. I think when you first come into a team, you don't know everyone that well. You can sort of just pick off talent and and what you think's best to go, what best team to go away. So that was hard for Barry. You know, it's hard for all the coaches, Rick and now Colin Batch, or whoever is selecting these teams. I find it, I think it's, yeah, it's very hard. So I don't have a theory on it. Um, I just think you just got to pick the best players and mm. the best group that's going to go away. You, I think you need good blokes as well um, because you need everyone to, to trust each other. You don't want any any sort of angst or fighting within the group. Saying that, um, you, yeah, I mean, you look at the Australian cricket team when they had you know, unbeatable Ricky Ponting and uh, Glenn McGrath and all those guys. They had a great team. They had Shane Warne who was you know, a little bit out there, but they could control him. So it's definitely a balanced thing, um, something that hopefully I get the chance to do in the future is to coach, hopefully, the Australian team. And um, <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to enjoy that part of selecting the team. So I haven't quite figured it out, but I will, if I do get to that stage, I will go to talk to Barry and Rick and those coaches and sort of see what their beliefs are and what their philosophies are with picking a, a good team. It's a good segue because after 2008, um, it heralded a new era in, in the history of the Australian Kookaburra is when Rick Charlesworth took over. Um, it was his first major appointment within Australia since the success of the Hockey Roos in the, in the 90s. Uh, how has that changed for you? It's completely different. Uh, different dynamic, totally. Rick's, Rick's a completely different personality to Parry to what I've been coached to the previous eight years. I was excited for the, for the challenge because I needed something personally to be a better player and I needed something a new fresh look at my fresh eyes to look at my game and to dissect it and be able to you know add things and he was great like that for me at the start Ricky he was good for me my game personally 2009 was probably my most my best year mm. you know I won EHL for Lindar won for the Dutch Championship we won everything for Australia got voted best player in the world and that was the first year that I got voted best player in the world where I honestly believed I was the best player in the world. Mm. It was 2009. So he created this different environment, different atmosphere and brought a lot of what he'd done with the Hockey Roos back in the 90s to us, which I believed was going to win us uh, a World Cup and hopefully an Olympic Games. Um, and we did. We won the World Cup in 2010 and 2014 and fell short in 2014. What I learned 12. from Rick and from uh, in twelve, sorry. What I learned from Rick and Barry is that both of them, a mixture of them, would I think become the perfect coach. Mm. Um, what Rick's strengths were, um, Barry was was his weaknesses, and what Barry's strengths were were Rick's weaknesses. And I think them together, <laughs> um, not that that would have been possible, but a, a combination of their coaching style is is perfect. And I think Colin Batch now at the moment is like coaching similar to how I would want to coach to be honest but um, yeah Rick was Rick was an interesting guy you know you, you've been coached by him he's, he's smart he speaks really well he f- finds some things difficult when it's personal and um, needs to chat to you about a few things you know he really starts crying but um, yeah I think what he did in that period of time was, was good for the Kookaburras. Mm. In 2012, there was um, an interesting part of the part of the game that I guess he brought in was, well, I'm not sure if he did actually, but you can correct me here, but um, there was a, a psychologist who, who worked with the team um, developing culture and, and had a pretty significant role within the team. Um, it's a big part of sport, sports psychology. I think um, Neil McLean, was involved with Barry Dancer as a sports psychologist, but in a different capacity to, I think, what um, Rick employed the, the psychologist in. Can you talk a little bit about that? 2013, yeah, he brought in a new team of psychiatrists, and uh, Karim was someone he worked with back with Hockey Roos as well. Um, it was 
difficult for me, very really difficult because I was the more the I was the person that they sort of wanted to knock down, mm. I guess. And my relationship with Rick before that was fine, you know, it was great. And then Corinne came on board and um, the first thing she said to me, you're in retirement, mate. I went, no, I still plan to play for Australia for a few more years. And I was put on the spot in a lot of team meetings, which I had no idea I was getting put on the spot. Um, you know, just little things like my, my son wanted to walk, walk out in 2014 final and he was allowed to, but she said, no, that's not allowed. Um, just stuff like that, which really hurt me personally. Um, and then the way, yeah, I missed out on the 2014 Commonwealth Games by an email at midnight on a Wednesday night, and then the next day from Rick saying that I wasn't selected, and then the next day him telling everyone that he's not the coach anymore. So that it all just didn't feel right, and now our relationship... Mine and Rick's, um, yeah, was not the same as what it was for the previous four years, uh, which upset me a lot because I thought I was treated unfairly. I, I knew why they were doing it. Uh, I could understand why they were doing it, but I still think some instances were unnecessary. And I just caught up with the manager not so long ago, actually, Mark Ferrari, and we spoke about a few of those in- instances. And, um, yeah, it was not a good time for mm. me. It was... Really disappointing, the whole way it went about it, and then Rick to to leave the team um, like that also disappointed me because I thought, yeah, okay, we we just won everything, you can go two more years and finish off your, your job, but he didn't do it, which which was uh, unfortunate. So that was hard time, but that was probably the hardest time, mm. definitely 2014 mm. throughout my career, being put on the spot, being made an example of could have handled it differently um, look back I was very emotional about it and just said a lot of things off, off the cuff where I need to go away and just think about some of the words I should have said and could have said but um, yeah that here uh, I didn't want to play hockey mm. I came home I, I wanted to quit I did quit about 10 times <laughs> I didn't want to go to this and that and even the World Cup once we won uh, it was great that we won and how we won but I was happy for the team and the guys it wasn't mm. wasn't a success um, it was a success but it hurt a mm. lot and I didn't enjoy it I didn't enjoy my hockey and uh, yeah it was a tough few years mm. a couple of years Last episode, I interviewed current kookaburra Tom Wickham. It's pretty tricky to summarise his story in just a few short sentences, but suffice it to say, it's a wonderful narrative of determination, commitment, and the lengths one man will go to realise his dream of playing for his country. Here's a peek. Um, you're getting a scholarship. Like, you, you, you and I have a scholarship. You get to move to Perth. When was that? That was end of 2010. I remember... Moving into this weatherboard house a couple of k's away from the hockey stadium, like house on stilts, like thing was falling apart. In summer, like the aircon, yeah, there's no aircon, and it was just like in summer the house was so hot, like you might as well just sit outside in the sun. And then in the winter it was that cold because the walls were that thin. And I was <laughs> living there for two years, and and like the the shower didn't actually have a a sprinkler head it was just literally like a hose and this, like just this straight stream of water would run out of it and as it hit your back it'd go everywhere and every day you'd just be mopping up the floor like doing that for two years just to chase this mission why, and, why did you have to live like that though? well when I so when I moved because I couldn't see where I was going to move mm. I at the time they AAS helped me <laughs> and I don't think they like and me being me I was like yeah just get me there so this was the house. I was like, well, I don't want to pay too much. I think I played, I paid like 320 bucks at the time I was living with my girlfriend and we would split, split the rent and like that was, that was where we lived. Just this massive block of sand with a house on stilts. The ovens didn't barely work. The, the toilets bit like always had to get fixed. Like it was just a crappy house um like yeah remember my car getting smashed windows like just living in this thing but i was on this mission and 
when I like that year of 2011 like I think back to that now and from yeah 2011 I just remember I, I just remember the blue white red singlets running around hockey pitch like madmen with like 40 blokes just stumbling through because I'd never been in an environment where like I wasn't really the best or I wasn't like the one challenging and in my head I was just like I'm just going to compete because mm. I'm just I can play mm. I don't remember making friends with anyone I don't remember well, I, I made friends with one bloke or a few people like but not connecting with them as like teammates or not not diving into this um environment of high performance I would just go training leave training and didn't didn't really understand how to live in that environment and it was such a blur that year of my first year in the program because I didn't know what I was doing I was just trying to survive more of that back in the help side episode with Tom Wickham but for now let's get back to our final segment with Jamie Dwyer let's go your um, all-time Australian games record has just been surpassed by a good mate of yours, Eddie Ockenden, and you ended up going to Rio as the Rio Olympics as the oldest ever um, Australian hockey player, I believe. Um, what brought you back? I thought that, like I said, I'd retired a few times, um, but during that time I was still playing pretty good hockey, I thought. And the whole Corinne and Rick thing had, was out of the program. So I looked at it as a fresh start. And I didn't want to end my career feeling the way I did. Mm. So I said to myself, just trust my ability, trust my body, and go and enjoy, enjoy my hockey with, with you guys. And when it was hard, I said to myself, just treat it like a job. Mm. Just go there, do your job. Do it well because you're bloody good at your job and then go home. Enjoy the games, enjoy the, you know, the fun times when we go away. But when it go hard, just, okay, this is my job. Rock up on time, before on time, do your job, go home. So I looked at hockey and playing for the Australian team completely differently than what I had for the previous eight years. I knew I wasn't going to be the best player in the world, but I knew I could contribute to the team. 2015, I scored the most goals I've ever scored for Australia. I played the most games ever for Australia with the best goal-to-game ratio that I've ever had. Yes, a couple of games were against Samoa and Fiji, which uh, I scored a few times. But if you take those games away from it, and you still my ratio goals-to-games was unreal. And that gave me confidence that I could do it. And I remember Graham Reed, the, the coach, said, we want you not to train as much. I said, no, I'm training as much as everyone else. I want to prove to myself, prove to the guys that I can, can train every day and still be you know, a valuable part for this team. Um, then leading into 2016, I, I still felt I was okay. I, my body was starting to struggle a little bit. I think mentally, once you know you're going to retire, you sort of, you think, ah, oh, you know, your body starts to for some reason, starts to struggle a little bit. But I was physically fine at, uh, over at Rio. We just didn't play well, uh, all of us. There were a couple of guys who played well, but in general, we didn't have enough uh, guys who, who played well. And I put that back to the 2013-2014. That whole build-up was so mumble-jumbled that it didn't leave us in a good position for the next two years. And, yeah, now... What I've seen, it's been excellent since then, and I'm really proud that uh, that we've gone through. Everyone's gone through that period, but yeah, um, it was a tough, tough couple of years. But yeah, 15, 16 were very enjoyable for me, just to prove to myself, to everyone, uh, that I could play hockey and play well. Mm. A lot of um, you hear a lot of elite athletes, uh, especially in team sports, speak about how hard it gets when. Um, their mates start to disappear from the team. Um, a lot of people retire early 30s, especially in a sport like hockey. Things get in the way. Life, family, you need to get a job, make a living, basically. Um, was that hard for you? Definitely, very hard. <coughs> I had a few good mates leave, like DY, 
um, a couple others, you know, it was, that's sort of been happening throughout my whole career, I guess, mates leaving and coming and going. Um, the hardest part was, I guess, the new generation of guys that came in were a little bit different to, to like my old beliefs, I guess, so I had to adapt to that and I had to, you know, accept and like to learn from the younger younger guys and that's one thing I, I did when I went to training, I learned from you and from the younger guys on and off the field and more than probably what you guys know. But um, yeah, it was, it's always hard when your mates, your good mates leave because if something goes wrong on tour, you go and chat there. But, you know, I always had Nolsey. Uh, he was there as sort of a guy I could always go to and have a chat to. Um, and I guess that also took through 2013, 2014, also disrupted my relationship with Nolsey a little bit. I trust him, he trusted me, but he had to do what Rick and Corinne were doing and sometimes I didn't believe that and I could see he didn't believe it but he couldn't say anything so he was sort of stuck in a bit of an awkward position as well. But yeah, the, the, through my whole career, I had mates come in and, in and out but that's you know one of the things I, I appreciate is I've met so many different people and so many different personalities here in Australia and also overseas. So, you know, overall I'm very happy with you know, getting to play for Australia for so long and meeting, going overseas and meeting new people and having friendships forever. I remember your last day at uh, at training, cleaning out your, your locker. Um, can you talk to us about that? Because you'd been in Perth for 17 years, playing for Australia, most capped at the time, most capped kookaburra ever. How did it feel checking out for the final time? Yeah, it was pretty sad, obviously. I put a lot of time and effort into playing for Australia. Um, but on the other hand, I was ready. I knew the time was right to move on. I have a lovely family. Um, we've set up nice, nicely here in Perth. So I was ready. I'd set up my businesses. So I was ready to, to move on into that, that life. Um, so, yeah, when I remember my last game, last training at, at the stadium, cleaning out my locker, and it was sad because that part of my life which I loved and cherished so much was not going to happen anymore and and you sort of pre- I appreciate it more now like the first couple of years when you leave international hockey in that environment you sort of it's pretty tough like mm-hmm. it's really tough because there's one part of me thinking I can still do it and still be out there and I want to do it and then there's the other part where no you're not doing it this is your new life so your new life sort of it's it's different. Mm. Um, you miss those moments. You miss the, <coughs> the nervous energy of running out onto the field with your mates, um, playing for Australia, wearing the green and gold, like chucking on the, the green and gold shirt to go out there to play someone. Those little moments, you miss a lot. And something that I was lucky, like I said, I was the most capped player until recently that I got to do so much of. But those moments you can't, so you can't replace. You know, you can have birthdays with your kids and you know wedding anniversaries and stuff with your wife but that little thing of representing a country to get that nervous energy at your peak at your prime going out there to battle is something that it's hard yeah it's it's irreplaceable Mm. coaching can replace it a little bit but still it's not the same Mm -hmm. so it's quite hard but it's quite yeah it's something you have to accept and move on Mm. There's a lot of, lot of accounts of um, that difficulty of long-standing elite athletes withdrawing from the sport, retirement, retiring, and then kind of having that, that lost um, couple of years really struggling with, with who they are, I guess, because a lot of um, who you are is wrapped up in what you do. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I was, I was lucky. I think you, because I retired when I chose to retire like mm. if you break a leg or don't get selected or something um, that would be even harder and I know the stats because I'm in the Australian Olympic Committee Athletes Commission of what they are with people who leave the sport and how they cope to deal with it I think you just got to prepare best you can and understand that it is different it's not going to be the same um, and just yeah have a really positive attitude because if you get down to the dumps and you know, it's it's quite hard to get out of. So, got a really positive attitude, and you know, 
I'm pretty lucky. I'm very lucky. You know, I, I wife, three kids, like I said, I've got a house here in Perth. I, I love playing golf. I can go play golf. We, get, we live in the best country in the world. So I don't have too much to, to complain about. So you just got to really look at the positive things in your life. And one thing which helps me is I set goals. Mm. So during my whole career, I'd set goals, yearly goals, monthly goals, and I'd try and achieve those goals. And now I do that as well. Um, outside obviously retired but with my business and with family and I really am a goal setter and try and achieve those goals and that gives me a focus of drive to to push on and keep learning and um, keep enjoying life what are the what are the goals are they massive picture or are they small individual goals like separate step by step how do you how do you do that well, like my hockey, it was a massive goal. Mm. Hockey was to win Olympic Games gold medal, which is the biggest um, of all time. But then you sort of work back from there. Okay, what do I need to do to achieve that? And, you know, I watched the documentary on Richie McGraw, how he wanted to be a great All Black. And then his dad or his uncle said, all right, what do you have to do to achieve that? And just work backwards and try and achieve step by step. So, yeah, it starts off with this massive goal of, having the best hockey brand in the world and having a really happy uh, family life, um, a separate one, a family life and that sort of thing. And then what I need to achieve, what steps do I need to, to get to to achieve that? So the goal setting is, is something which has really helped me mm. through that transition and um, it yeah, makes me get up in the morning and you know want to go out there and achieve things just like I did when I was an athlete and towards the the end of your career you um you talk about having a second and, and third place and golf was one for you at the start but obviously with hockey we're not in the position where we retire with pots of money so you started your business um JDH and how a few questions first of all how was it balancing a business family life and playing hockey for Australia when you're also balancing the fact that you're 36 37 and not not a spring chicken it's difficult it's really difficult because for me at that part of my career families was number one so i wanted to spend as much time with them uh, i knew i was away a lot throughout the year uh, with hockey so every moment i wanted to cherish with my family young kids you, you only get that once so i wanted to be there for them uh, i don't have any parents here my wife doesn't have any parents here uh, so we're here by ourselves. We don't have any help at all. So when I'm at home, I really wanted just to be with them and try and help out as much as possible. Hockey, I wish I had more time to, when I was playing to commit to it, um, to be there longer. But then when I was there longer, I felt bad for my family. So it's getting that balance is is very, really, and managing that is really critical to, to be able to be successful at both. Then the JDH side was a bit more of a hobby. Um, I was lucky I had another company who sort of brought brought it with to me and they were owners at that time with me and they did a lot of the work, to be honest, and I just fed off my name and my contacts around the world to be able to build that brand. Once I retired, though, um, the band, brand had built up pretty big and has been going in the right direction. Since then, so I bought my business partners out. Now I run it 100%, which is a great challenge and a great... I love it. I love working for my own brand, my own company. It's it's great to be able to sponsor athletes, to be able to make good hockey sticks and to, to do what I do. But, yeah, that balancing is very... It's, it's quite hard. Um, and I really admire people. You know, for rugby league players or NRL players, it's hard, but they're always in Australia. Mm. And they might have one away game, but then they're home for the mm. majority. Um, but for hockey players who, you know, we earn not very much below the average wage in Australia, probably half of that, uh, we, don't, we aren't financially rewarded. We're away for three months of the year, um, all because of their love for the sport. So to manage that, the family and the business um, was was quite hard, especially in the last couple of years of my life. But I'm very proud of how I did it and and how I managed it. And my family still love me. <laughs> <laughs> JDH is, is going well. And yeah, I think I contributed in 2015-16. Mm. Can you tell us about what's, what's next for you? 
Well, I want to keep growing the brand. Um, it's it's going great. We've just got a new designer on, on board as well. So we've got a new fresh look coming up next year. Um, I have a great relationship with the factory over in Pakistan and, and the factories in India and, and, and China as well. So I've got everything in place um, to, to be hopefully successful. The quality of the sticks is the, the biggest thing that I've been working on over the last few years um, and just how to run a business was challenging as well. Um, it's all right to sell hockey sticks and accessories and stuff, but you actually need to make a profit. So I've learned a lot about that over the last couple of years. And yeah, now starting to venture out, um, getting into apparel, and team, team wear uniforms for, for JDH and already signed up a dozen clubs over in, in Holland so and a few in Germany and Australia. So that's uh, venturing out a little bit into the uniforms, just trying to grow the brand. Mm. Um, a lot of love hockey, obviously. Mm. I've loved it from a very young age. And now this, like this role, this company that I have, this allows me to stay in, involved in the sport and I want to set it up so it's a big brand, a mm. huge brand. And then eventually, once my kids are older and the business is all set up, then I can go, go into coaching is my plan. Mm. Last question before, um, usually do a couple of quick questions at the end, but my last question is you said at the start about one of the reasons why you wanted to play for Australia is a curiosity in the world and a love of traveling and seeing different places. You'd You've done that, um, but you spent a lot of time in in Holland. It's where you met your your wife. It's um, it's where you spent a lot of your hockey playing days and played with some amazing people. Would have worked with some amazing people. Played awesome games. Here in Australia, the club scene is very different, um, and I think a lot of Australians probably look at the European club system with a little bit of envy. Um, it's run so well. It seems so well supported. There's a lot of interest. They get great players such as yourself playing there. Do you think there's any chance of that happening in Australia? I think there is. Yeah, we just need to structure it right. Um, we're close to a lot closer to Asia than the Europeans. So the Europeans, you know, it's quite small compared to Australia. You know, it's a little Holland so small, Belgium so small, the UK. So they don't have to travel too far to have a national competition all year round, and to have the English hockey league is oh sorry the european hockey league as well so we can we can do it here i just think we need to manage it right and have a look at soccer and how they structure their tournaments and their games and maybe have a window between the july august period where we can have some different competitions run um yeah i think we need to learn from europe and how they do it well like the culture everyone at the club having a great game and then everyone stays and has a bite to eat and a drink and all the kids are out there playing until the sun goes down and then they go home. Here in Australia, once there's a game finished, everyone goes home um, because they have to drive and, you know, over there you just jump on your bike. So the culture's a little bit different, uh, which, yeah, we need to learn from because uh, obviously they're doing something right. They do not everything right over there, but they do a few, a lot of good things which I think we should copy. Um, I want this sport in this country to be successful for a number of years, like forever. And at the moment, we're sort of plateauing in participation rate. But Hockey Australia and the, and the States are starting to think outside the box and are starting to do things which I think are, are going to make improvements for the sport. And, yeah, if I can help in any way, I would help. And I know we've got a lot of good people involved at the moment but Mark Knowles just recently signed up with Hockey Australia which I think is awesome um, all the all the institute sport coaches are ex-players whether it's Brent Livermore Matt Wells Jay Stacey so we've got some awesome people in the right positions we just need to, need to figure out now we need to work together rather than Western Australia versus Victoria versus New South work all together so we come up with a great club season slash AHL or whatever it's called now and international like games all around Australia we want my kids other kids all around the world to look up to you or to other um, hockey players male or female and want to aspire to them rather than wanting to be a rugby league or an AFL player because hockey is a much better sport it's played like I said anywhere you can go to New York and play in a hockey team you can go to India to Japan to wherever 
play hockey and meet new friends and you can travel to all these places and that's the advantage that we've got so I think we have a the only way is up at the moment for Australian hockey and not just at the international stage but from the junior program all the way through to the masters and I think we're on the right track from what the what I've been told from Hockey Australia and WA and other people um, everyone's ready to go so hopefully the, the, you know, the world's been in a pretty weird place over the last six months or longer eight months I think it's given us time to to reset and think about what's important and Hockey Australia have done that and I've done that with my business and and I'm sure every business or person has done that so there's no better time than now to be able to to plan ahead and think what's best for our sport in this country in particular. Brilliant. couple of questions to finish. First one, best player you've ever played against? Turn and I. <laughs> Just explain Turn to, to us. What made him so good? No, he's electric. He's giving go, his vision off the ball, his game smarts, his ability to score, tackle, um, left, right, um, his fitness, his attitude, his personality everything I learned so much from Turn and I went to Holland to play with Turn and Neuer we got offered more money from other places but I wanted to play with Turn and it, he helped me become the player I am I learned so much hopefully more um, I learned more from him than what he learned from me hopefully <laughs> uh, a lot of success against him uh, against the Dutch team when he was playing thankfully as well um, but we had some amazing amazing games in Holland together for Bloomingdale and we had a lot of success there for a number of years without um, I mean the equivalent really is Messi joining Ronaldo at that time of your life both Probably both players yeah. were you know world player of the year consecutive but yeah it's just it's a that would have been awesome to witness and play with um, best player you've ever played with and it can't be turned because well this is a difficult one there's so many like mm. I think Bevan George would up, be up there, Troy Elder. Um, he was one of the most skillful guys and who shouldn't have retired when he did. I wish he kept playing for another four years. Troy Elder? Yeah. He's still playing, isn't he? Yeah, not for Australia. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, yeah, those two come to mind. Mm. Michael Brennan for that short period was unbelievable. Um, yeah, Brent Livermore, Nolsey, uh, Eddie Ockerton, like, there's so many. Mm. I've played with they're all completely different um, but yeah turn again is the best I've ever played with final question um, as I said before there aren't many names in the greatest of all time shortlist but um, you're definitely one of them with accolades to match but as you said before you've seen a lot of talented guys um, you yourself are a talented guy but there's something that took you from being a talented fella from Rockhampton to in that debate what do you think it is? My competitiveness uh, I hated losing I loved winning I hated like if I was a one on one battle at training against Nolsey I hate losing it or Eddie or anyone uh, or turn so that drove me to become the, the player that I was like um, I just one thing I did was I learned so much and that competitiveness is the one thing that made me learn quickly and I just drove myself to a, to a level I never thought I would get to. I never thought, I thought maybe I'd play for Australia, maybe I'd go to the Olympics, maybe if I was really lucky I'd win a gold medal. But to win two World Cups and be a consistent, consistently good player from pretty much when I started until I finished, um, I never thought that was possible. And one thing I did when I did retire, which I was proud of, is I looked, you know, you have a lot of regrets of things you could have done, could have trained, could have this. But one thing I was very proud of is I could look myself in the mirror and say, well done, you gave it everything you had. I never thought I'd be as fast as what I was. My change of direction was sharp. I was super fit. Like I was fitter than, at that stage, fitter than nearly everyone. So, yeah, I got to levels which I never thought I could get to. And it's because I was so competitive. Yeah, and I still am. I play 
touch footy out in the backyard. My kids, I want to be. <laughs> but um, my wife, she says, why don't you just let them win for once? Or what play Mario Kart or whatever, I have to win. But uh, that competitiveness, it got ingrained in me. And like I just was tunnel vision there for a lot of years. I was selfish um, because I put hockey above everything else. I was... I lived and breathed it. I'd go to sleep thinking about playing against Germany or playing against Holland or whatever. I'd wake up thinking about what I had to eat and drink to be, you know, peak at my best if I had to go stretch or what I had to do. So I was so vision tunneled and so selfish and so competitive that it drove me to, to become the player I've become. And I'm going to just back that up with another question. If someone wants to aspire to be like you in that regard one piece of advice is to just learn every single day and become the best possible player or person that you can become because like I said I thought of a I thought I could only reach a certain level and I went way past that um, so but on the other hand, I had a backup plan just in case because if I did break my leg in 2007, 2004, whatever, and I never came back, um, I didn't have a plan. Mm. And it's important to have that balance in life. But to, to be really, really good at something, you have to commit to it. And I'm contradicting myself here a little bit by mm. saying you've got to commit to it 100% mm. and give everything. But you've got to have a little part of you to think, okay, what if, what if um, this doesn't work out? So, yeah, I'd say be the best player that you can possibly become and don't stop learning. Brilliant. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Jack. No worries. That's it for another episode of The Help Side. Special thanks to my production team of David Moore and Tim Collier, plus countless others working behind the scenes to get this to you. You're the real MVPs. Again, if you're liking the show, please like, subscribe, you know the drill, and get in touch with us via our socials. We would love to hear from you. Anyway, that's all, folks. See you next week.